friends. Welcome to World Build With Us, the podcast where we create fantastical worlds, normally with help from you, our listeners. But on today's very special episode, we have an interview with RPG industry luminary, uh, Pathfinder, Starfinder, co-creator, rock god, James L. Sutter. And um, uh, yeah, in our interview, we kind of go over a little bit of world building stuff, have a lot of fun, kind of get to pick his brain about what it's like to be in the industry. And then towards the end, we actually get to do a world building jam session. And of course, we're doing this interview with xenogenic xenophobe, Chris Prunty. I'm a xenophile as well as our special guest, Daniel Quinn. We're just going to go ahead and cut straight to the interview now, and we'll see you on the other side. He's metal, guys. He is very metal. All right, and we are here with uh, James L. Sutter. Uh, James, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Uh, why don't you go ahead and just start off by telling us about yourself a little bit. Okay. Um, well, like you said, my name is James Sutter. I'm uh, probably best known as the co-creator of the Pathfinder and Starfinder role-playing games. Um, I was, before that, I started out in the role-playing game industry working as uh, an editor and developer on Dungeon Magazine for Dungeons and Dragons. Um, and then we moved on and created Pathfinder. And then I did a bunch of different jobs um, related to the Pathfinder world, you know, working as a developer, an editor, a writer, all those different things. Um, I was the executive editor in charge of the novel line for Pathfinder. Um, and then I was the um, original creative director on Starfinder, sort of helping to kind of create that world. Um which actually was a really fun project because we got to base the Starfinder setting in large part on a book I'd written uh, about Pathfinder's solar system called Distant Worlds. And so yeah. Starfinder gave us a chance to expand out from there. And I got to lead that team, which was really fun. Uh, and then uh, I stepped down from that a couple years ago to go uh, to writing full time. And so in addition to my day job stuff, you know, I've also written comics and video games and i've got two novels death's heretic and the redemption engine uh both of which are kind of like uh kind of like blade runner meets dante's inferno um they're both set in the pathfinder world but they're all about an atheist who detective who through some bad decisions ends up tracking down souls for the death goddess um so yeah i've done a bunch of different stuff been on kind of all different sides of the RPG and fiction industries. Uh, yeah, actually, uh, I've been a big fan of Paizo and Pathfinder and Starfinder for a number of years. I've been following kind of that whole crew since Dungeon Era magazine. Like oh, that, nice. Yeah, that's basically when I started getting into RPGs was through the magazines, really. And, you know, your settings and books and everything like that are kind of what drew me in. I remember the first Adventure Path and just being blown away at how well designed and how intricate everything was. It was a really interesting and awesome. It was a fun experience to kind of understand that that's what you could do with an RPG. Thank you. So when you say first adventure path, do you mean the first Paizo one, Rise of the Rune Lords, or the first Pathfinder one? Or do you mean the adventure paths in Dungeon Magazine? Oh, I'm, I'm talking about Dungeon Magazine. back. Yeah, when was, yeah, yeah. Back with Shackled City. Was, I think, well, oh, and Age of Worms was... Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was no, the Jackal first... City was with Cauldron, which is where uh, like yeah. my, where it really started for me, where I fell in love. And I'm like, oh, wow, I can do so much with this. You know, it's great. 
And, you know, that obviously introduced me to a lot of the great writers like James Jacobs or Richard Pat. Yeah. And you obviously, like I've read both Thank your you. novels. Yeah. Oh, yeah. awesome. Yeah. That's, that's really exciting, actually. Yeah, um, no, and, and I was going to say, like, there's a definite, like, noir feel to both your novels. And it's it's interesting. I was rereading parts of it. And uh, Death's Heretic is is fairly straightforward, all things considered, until you right. get and then and then like Redemption Engine is like, okay, now that this is established, let's get into the really fun stuff, you know. And that's that's really what I uh, what I pulled away from that. Right. Well, and both of those books were very much written like the express goal for me was like, which parts of the world am I super excited to play with, and how can I craft a book that will allow me to go to as many of these different locations and see as many of these different critters uh, as I, as I can, you know, like, uh, so Death's Heretic, there's a bunch of outer planar stuff because it's like, man, wouldn't it be fun to write a book that goes to, you know, the maelstrom and the first world and all of these different planes that I'm super in love with. I've always been a fan of outer planes, um, you know, back from the planescape days and before. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the redemption engine was a chance for me to go play in Karamaga, which was a city that I built for Pathfinder, which was, you know, everybody kind of worked on everything on the team, but everybody also had certain areas that were sort of their pet projects. And so I got to create Karamaga pretty much from scratch over the course of many years and be the the primary person doing almost all the design work for it. Um, And so it really was a... uh, was a treat to get to go back then and write a whole novel set there. I mean, absolutely. I remember reading the first bit about Karamaga just being like, what is a bloat mage? And right. what are wormful? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I, and I remember reading an article that you followed up with it. Like, I also had no idea what was going on. Around <laughs> yeah. that too. So it was kind of like a challenge to yourself to kind of fill in, you know, what you had you just you just came up with the most evocative phrases and be like, okay, now I got to actually do it. Well, and that's actually one of my favorite ways to world build, and it's something that uh, a lot of people at Paizo, you know, had really embraced that idea of don't try and do everything at once. You know, like start mm-hmm. start small, leave yourself some breadcrumbs and some things that excite you, and then if you're excited about a thing and the audience is excited about a thing, you can explore it more and more. So actually the way uh, Karamaga evolved is a perfect example of that because it started out. uh, So one of the very first adventure modules we published, um, I can't remember if the magazines were already over at that point, but one of the first modules that Paizo published kind of on its own uh, was this, module called Seven Swords of Sin, uh, that it actually started as sort of an in-office contest to design all these deadly dungeon rooms. Um, and then we said, you know, this is pretty fun. Um, and, you know, Sutter, why don't you take this and try and like stitch it all together and add a bunch of new stuff and make it into a proper dungeon crawl adventure. Um, and so I did that. But in order to have this dungeon, I needed to create some sort of location for the dungeon to be set in. Um, and so I was kind of, you know, I was big into like China Mieville's stuff at the time, um, you know, Perdido Street Station and stuff. And I was kind of going that way. And then Eric said, hey, you know, Sutter, I need you to build us a Castle Greyhawk. 
you know, we need a uh, a location that you can just have infinite dungeon adventures underneath. Um, I kind of went, well, that's, you know, not a tall no order deal. at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Design, design for us, one of the most iconic locations, you know, in analog. <laughs> um, but so we, I sort of smashed up those ideas. And so really there wasn't much space for that setting. So it was, like you said, um, it was like a half a page in the back of the module where I just wrote whatever random stuff came to mind that sounded intriguing about this city that was full of, you know, bloat mages who use the the power of their own, the magic in their own blood to, to cast magic and, you know, sweet talkers who sew their own lips shut and, you know, just all of these different things. The worm folk and... The uh, Irish uh, trolls are one of one of my favorites as well. I've oh yeah, yeah. The sure. augers, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and so I just sort of threw this stuff out there, and then it was really the audience coming back onto the message boards and saying, "Well, what is all this stuff? Like, what's a worm folk? You know, what's a what's a bloat mage?" Um, and so then I got to uh, write a short story set there in the third Pathfinder volume, uh, and in that one. I also included some little sidebars on the different districts of the city and sort of explaining, okay, what is a bloat mage? You know, coming up with these ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and then people loved it. And so then that became uh, a the impetus to do a 64-page campaign setting book where we just detailed the city uh, as a whole. Um, and that was really fun. That was one of my f- favorite early projects um, and still remains one of my favorite world building projects actually because it let me just really deep dive on that city um and then from there i got to set uh you know the, a novel there and so it just kept sort of expanding over the course of god possibly a decade um wow. and and it's really <laughs> fun to be able to build like that over time like obviously not everything takes that form sometimes you need to build stuff a little bit faster but oh, i have a question for you considering that you've had you have like more than a decade you know doing both novel writing and world building for rpgs yeah like what do you see as the differences when you're putting together like a supplement for an rpg and you're doing the world building for a novel like where is the overlap and where are the differences i feel like a lot of our listeners you know they're coming at this either from an rpg angle or they're trying to write and so they want to figure out how they can use world building in both cases um well i mean the first thing i'd say is that a lot of it is the same um you know i i teach world building classes every every so often uh both online and in person and what i tell people is like it's mostly the same toolbox you're using the same uh ideas the same strategies to ask yourself questions uh that can then lead you to create these interesting worlds i'd say the biggest difference between the two approaches um is just thinking about the utility of them and like what they're going to be used for. Uh, so if you're writing a novel, you only really need to build the parts of the world that your story is going to touch and you get to decide those things. Um, and so while you can absolutely write a giant world document and then use that to inspire your storytelling, um, you can also just say like, look, if I know that this, uh, this story is going to take place entirely in country A, then I really only need to know a tiny amount about countries B, C, and D, like just enough to drop some illusions and make the world feel larger, right? Whereas if I'm doing it as an RPG, I don't necessarily know where people are going to want to spend their time and energy. So I need to uh, take into account the fact that players might want to zig instead of zag. Um 
And also, I think really, so my strategy when designing an RPG setting, especially a gazetteer, um, is to remember that your job isn't to detail everything. It's to inspire the game master. Um, and so it's often more important to ask interesting questions than to give the answers. Um, and so one of the ways that I keep that in mind is when I'm writing a gazetteer of, you know, here's 30 different locations in this nation or whatever. Um, I really try to make sure that I've got a solid adventure hook, like every hundred words, um, you know, every location you write about should have something in it that makes a game master sit up and go, Oh, I could, I could design an entire adventure or an entire campaign launching off of this one detail. Um, and if you ever have a detail, like uh, a location that doesn't have something like that, and it doesn't have to just be locations, um, you know, it can also be if you're talking about, you know, guilds or religions or whatever, if you don't have a really obvious story hook in whatever you're describing, um, you should really go back and look at it again, because especially as a professional, as somebody who's trying to sell stuff, um, the only reason people are coming to your work is because they want to be inspired right into the games that they're going to play. And so that's where I get frustrated sometimes with, you know, people think that more information is better. And so you'll end up with, uh, you know, some in that has 10 pages written on it and it's got every, you know, drink and menu item detailed. So you've got this huge amount of verisimilitude, but there's no adventure there. There's no nothing. There's nothing yeah. exciting about it. Um, and so even if all you're doing is, even if all you need is just an in, like this is just designed for the players to stop in, you know, sleep there, get a drink, whatever, like put something in there, you know, give the bartender a shady past that could come back to haunt her at any moment, you know, have there be a ghost in the attic, have there be something going on so that on the wall kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly something for the players or the GM to latch on to uh, because otherwise if you're just detailing a, a generic in well the, whoever is buying your book could have done that themselves right like and if you're doing it for players why would they want to go back to that in again I mean by creating these interesting and unique aspects to the in itself you're also giving yourself as a GM less work to do because oh they're just going to go back to that in that they like I don't have to create a brand new in like it's, it's essentially adding. Adam's yeah. Kit. And yeah. people can ask, it's just like, Oh, is there a drink like vodka? And you can be like, yeah, yeah, there is. All right. It's called this now. Yeah, and there's, yeah. and there's also hypnotic worm in it that you just, <laughs> just ignore that. It's fine. You know, yeah. Like that. Well, and with both gaming and stories, like the goal is to capture the person's imagination. It's not necessarily to, tell them even, you know, to give them the answers. But I've, I can't tell you how many interactions I've had with people where I, you know, write something in a book that's two sentences about the lost city of whatever that's hanging from the cliffs, you know, just over the horizon. Um, and then I'll run into somebody at a, at a convention and they'll say, oh my God, I love your work. We've been playing in that city for like the last two years, <laughs> this whole campaign. And they're saying, oh, you're, you know, you did so well with that. And I'm thinking, I wrote two sentences. I yeah. half the time I don't even remember the location you're talking about. Uh, all about the hook. Yeah. 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 Because you it was enough to make you ask the questions. And by asking the questions, you then 
answered them for yourself in interesting ways. Um, And that's how I work with myself as well. You know, um, all of my world building strategies are based on trying to ask questions so that I have no choice but to answer them in ways I didn't expect. Are you a pantser or are you a plotter when it comes to your novels? Do you want to do you want to give people like a, a definition? Back? Of oh yeah, sure, sir. Sure. So the the pantsers are the kind that just like put the page down and start writing. They don't have real, a real plan in mind. The plotters have pages and pages of detailed notes where their plot's going. Yeah, so I'm definitely a plotter, uh, and that's a result of my training, kind of in the both the magazine and then the book industry. Uh, because I'm, <laughs> I'm a very lazy mercenary sort of writer, and so I don't want to write things more than I have to. Um, and so by having a really solid outline at the beginning, I can write a thing once, and you know, then go back and edit it, of course. But I don't have to risk getting halfway through a novel and then realizing that everything needs to change and going back <laughs> to the start. Right? You know, I always say I want. I want to write a book as few times as possible, right? Um, but, uh, you know, that said, I will also say that writing the outline is my least favorite part of every project. Like, I think it's absolutely the hardest part. That week when I'm figuring out what needs to happen in the book is so much harder than the six months when I'm actually writing it. It's because you're in the, in the outlining process, you're trying to answer these questions instead of raise them, which is the fun part, the raising of the questions, right? Yeah. Well, and for me, there's a terror to the, the blank page, right? right? Like, it's so easy to... Uh, <laughs> to make quote unquote the wrong choice right if there's mm-hmm. no right choice and there's no wrong choice like anything could be the wrong choice um and so i get really intimidated which is one of the reasons why uh for my world building it's usually a matter of just throwing out it's kind of like stream of consciousness just throwing out anything i can think of in the hopes that there will be something in there that i can latch on to that'll make me ask a question um and then just it's it's riffing, it's jamming. That's mm-hmm. the only way I know how to how to build stuff. Yeah, I really couldn't agree more with you in that. Like we've been doing, uh, we've been essentially creating our own fantasy setting over the last twenty five episodes, and that's the really fun part for us is where we sit down. And some of our, you know, some of my favorite episodes are the episodes where we come in, we have like a blank page and we, or like one sentence. And then we just build from there. And some of the best ideas that we've come up with are just like, okay, I love that idea. Let's build on it. And it, when you talk about jam session, I mean like, yeah, that's essentially what happens where you start with a core idea and then everyone gets involved and it just becomes this, you know, beautiful mosaic after a while, which is pretentious, but also accurate because everyone's involved in it. Yeah, we'll get to a point where it's just like, oh, I like uh, X, Y, and Z, but I don't really know how to what, what it's missing. And yeah, then right. one of you will usually chime in and be like, uh-huh. just like, what if it had this? Or you'll ask a question and uh-huh. then, you know, that'll get your brain thinking about it. And then of course you go back. And exactly. I imagine, James, that for you, you probably experienced a bit of that at Paizo, but I imagine it's probably much different when you're uh, you know, alone and trying to do that you know, for your own writing. Right. Yeah. In a lot of ways, it can be harder to do it on your own versus you know, when you're on a team, I really like the ability to you know, not just riff off other people's ideas, but in the act of explaining an idea to somebody, you can kind of watch their faces and see their mm-hmm. reactions and know Absolutely. when you've yeah. hit gold and when they're getting a little bit bored. And so you can change things up on the fly. But um, my two principles that I generally try and 
start out any world building class with are uh, evolution and intersection. And so what I mean by that is um, the intersection is trying to have multiple ideas that come together in interesting ways. Like instead of just taking one trope, uh, you know, and saying like, okay, well, I like dragons, so I'm just going to do dragons. Um, you know, you say, well, take two different tropes that are unrelated and mash them up and say, well, I really like dragons and I really like zombies. Uh, how can I mash those up? Oh, look, you've got Game of Thrones, right? Um, and so I think that often the really interesting world building details will come from smashing up two things and asking, well, how do these intersect? And they'll usually kind of like billiard balls, send you off in a third direction that you didn't really expect where you're saying, well, how does that work? Like, why, why would these things make sense together? You know? Um, And uh, evolution is also kind of about that. Um, It's about sort of explaining why things are the way they are, whether that's retconning from an idea that you have or taking sort of a situation and expanding outward from it. Um, And so asking yourself like, okay, well, if you're going to have a flying city, like that's cool, but why is the city flying? Mm -hmm. What are the environmental factors that led to that? Like, is the ground poisonous? Is it a political thing? They're trying to avoid, you know, touching down in any particular nation because then the nation has sovereignty. You know, is it... That's uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, right? Like, um, so just asking yourself all of those questions about how things got to be the way they are and where they're going um you can you it can be really fruitful i really couldn't agree more like when like the evolution is it is is kind of the process in a lot of ways you know understanding how and why everything fits and i think one of the things that i'm really big on with my own world building is does it make sense and if not how can i make it make sense you know like yes cohesion is so important because once you lose that verisimilitude it's like okay you've lost the players in a lot of ways well and that retconning um i've always said i love retconning actually because mm-hmm. i feel like it can add a lot of verisimilitude like here's a, a classic example i give from uh pathfinder is when we were in the early days of Pathfinder, we had this big old world map and we were just trying to populate it as quickly as possible um, with locations and, you know, everybody's throwing names on there. Mm -hmm. And in that sort of fast and furious environment, you're going to make a few mistakes. And so there's stuff like we ended up with two different orc cities that had almost the same name. One was Urgir and one was Urglin and they weren't even that (laughs) far from each other. Um, And we kind of looked at that and went, Oh no, like we look like idiots. Uh, (laughs) And then I said like, no, wait, how about this? How about uh, this is an orc language thing. And you know, Ur is their name for, uh, is their word for city or home. And so Urgir is first home and Urglin is second home, you know, and now there's this like linguistic thing that connects them. Or, uh, you know, we had the same thing happen with, we had two different nations uh, whose capitals were Eladir and Eladir, um, which are like the one letter difference. (laughs) And we went, oh, I mean, this isn't just a screw up. Like they're the same capital, like they're capitals of these nations. Um, But then we realized one of those nations is a colony. And we said, Oh, well, this is perfect. Actually it's settlers from Eladir founded Eladir. 
And, uh, you know, in the same way that you've got York and New York, you know, there's all sorts of Mm -hmm. cities in the States that have European names. Um, So actually, this makes the world feel more real, you know, that kind of thing. I love figuring out how seeming mistakes actually make sense. Yeah, I think Bob Ross calls those happy little accidents. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, I think what we've done, because, you know, as we're creating the setting, we're kind of figuring stuff out. We've just stopped calling it retconning at this point. We're just calling them patch notes. Patch for software, right? Yeah, yeah it's like we're just yeah. adding stuff and changing it. Hey, you know, like bug report, this continent no longer exists because it doesn't fit anymore. <laughs> so, no, it know. was a legend. It was a legend, <laughs> yeah. damn it. There you yeah. go. Well, and and yeah. so much of it comes down to the, uh, you know, the old improv principle of yes and, right? Mm-hmm. Like you oh, want to keep, keep the scene going by saying like, okay, everything we've told you is true. Now I'm going to tell you something else that's true that adds a whole new dimension to it right do you have do you have any moments in the writer's room like at paizo or a dungeon wherever you were working um at the time that stick out to you as like those kind of aha moments when you guys figured something out that was really tough oh god um i mean there's there's a million of them so i'm trying to grab like actually the first thing i think of is um one of my first real contributions to uh to Dungeon Magazine was I remember when we were doing, I think the Savage Tide Adventure Path. And I hadn't been, um, like I'd been editing it for a while, but I hadn't really been in on the ground stage planning of Age of Worms. Um, So this was my first chance to kind of like be there at the start. And I remember we were trying to figure out what the motivation for Demogorgon, the the big bad guy was. and I remember at some point, you know, because he's got two heads. Uh-huh. Uh, and at some point, everybody was going round and round trying to figure out, like, why is he doing this? Why is he doing these things that don't make sense? And I, you know, set, raised my hand and was like, what if the two heads are arguing with each other? Disagree with each other? That's hilarious. Yeah, it's working against each other. <laughs> and I remember yeah. Jacobs, you know, just lighting up. And one thing yeah. about, um, so James Jacobs, uh, who's the creative director for Pathfinder, um, and is one of the most creative guys in the business. Uh, so something I used to love about uh, working for him originally, because he started out as my boss and then working with him, um, is when you get a good idea, like when you can light him up, he just explodes with laughter. And it's just like, it's this delightful thing where you know instantly that you've won the game. Um, <laughs> and so, so many, so much of the early years was just, if I can get, jacob's excited about an idea it's good right um and so that was that was so much of the early days of dungeon especially when i was first getting my feet underneath me uh because when i came into working in rpgs um i told people i spent the first couple of years just learning what was cool like because i really i i had some tastes i knew the books that i liked but i just didn't know what really made a great RPG. Uh, and so I spent a lot of time listening to, you know, Jacobs and Eric Mona, the publisher, and Wes Schneider and Jason Bullman, and just sort of figuring out what all of their tastes were and watching how they interacted with each other and sort of picking and choosing um, the things that I really liked and figuring out how you synthesize a group, you know, a group of really diverse tastes into a world that, you know, Pathfinder, a lot of people when we started it said it was a terrible idea because the conventional idea was you can't build a world that's everything to everybody. Like you need to go in 
really strong on a particular flavor. You know, because if you look at the old second edition Dungeons and Dragons things, like, you know, Dark Sun had a very specific flavor. Planescape had a very specific flavor. You know, Birthright, Dragonlance. um, They really would like pick something and do a deep dive. And so the idea was if you try and make a game uh, you know, a setting where anybody can play anything they want, uh, it'll just be generic and nobody will be excited about it. Um, and what we discovered is like, you know, while, while there is that danger, by making a world that had very specific regions, you know, so you had like Ustalov was your sort of Transylvania, Ravenloft, you know, gothic horror land, right? That's Wes Schneider's baby, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Wes yeah. Schneider was, uh, was very much the architect of that, right? And so... Like you could play if that was what you liked, you could play in the Pathfinder setting and just play there. And you would never even know that there's, you know, well, there's Viking land over here and there's magical guns over here and there's the undead nation over there. Right. Like um, we really tried to make sure that you could play any sort of game you wanted within the same setting, but that we would sort of contain them all so that you didn't necessarily have everything leaking into each other. So if you wanted to play, you know, a really hardcore Arabian Nights game and somebody else wanted to play a Conan versus Aliens game, like those two didn't have to uh, interrupt each other. But but also, you know, for somebody like me, who's really, I get bored very easily in games. Um, and so I love it when every adventure has a different flavor, you know, is going to a new location um, and it's something that if people play through any of the adventures I've written, um, you'll find there's often several very different flavors in the same, in, the, in, in even the same adventure, not even the same campaign, just because I really like to mix things up and keep players on their toes. So going back, I think a number of years, uh, there was a tweet of you where you were uh, criticizing New Orleans and how it was out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, as far as the pet peeves and everything, I was reading those and just going over what you would hate about city, uh, like someone giving you a draft of a city and everything. Is there anything for like world building that you would be like, oh God, what are you doing? <laughs> well, actually, Come first off, I should, yes. <laughs> I should uh, tell people like the, the New Orleans thing was fascinating because it was, it was one of those jokes that's sort of not a joke. But uh, so basically what I went did is I on Twitter went through uh, the actual map of New Orleans taken from Google Maps um, and just pointed out all of these things that feel totally unrealistic unreal- and would violate all of these sort of you know rules of thumb that I have about designing cities. Oh. Um, but of course, like the thing that I think a lot of people didn't get is like the reason it's a joke is because I'm saying all of these things are fake and unrealistic, but they're real, Yeah. right? Like New Orleans is a bizarre city. You've got all of these things that don't make sense except through the historical context, right? Where you've got, you know, parts of the city that are lower than the river next to them, you know, or you've got (laughs) a bridge going straight across the widest part of the lake where it would be the hardest to build. And you go, Nobody would do that. That doesn't make any sense. But of course, it does. Avoids lakes, rivers, and everything else to snake <laughs> right. its way to the ocean. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's all these things, and there were funny things. You know, like canals that look like somebody just you know accidentally drew a line there. You know, that kind of thing. Um, and so I was making fun of it, but there are uh, sort of the message there was like there are good rules of thumb for designing cities, but also 
any rule can be broken if you have, you know, an explanation for it. Um, and so, <laughs> so yeah, when that blew up, I actually, I actually ended up on television in a New Orleans, uh, yeah. <laughs> which I did not expect at all, that they wanted to do an interview. And I was like, uh, okay. Was it friendly or were they like, apologize? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, uh, so they, when I agreed to go on it, they were like, don't worry, you know, it's fun. It's a fun morning show. Like it'll be really, uh, It'll be very chill. Everybody gets it's all in good fun. Um, and Until so I, I exactly. And as soon as they're like, you're live, the host turns to me and goes, so I hear you're talking smack about New Orleans. And I was like, oh, <laughs> it was a joke. But, That's when you double down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Your city is not yeah. real. It it's does right. not exist. You just go harder. Yeah, I'm, I'm a New Orleans truther. No, uh, <laughs> Love it. But, um, Oh God! So now I totally forget the original question. But uh, <laughs> I, I was wondering if yeah. you had any pet that were pet peeves yeah. about world building, world building in yeah. general. Yeah. Um, well, you know, it's easy to talk about map stuff, right? Uh, you know, people. Uh, you don't need to be a geologist to do sort of some basic research and think about like, okay, like water flows downhill. You know, like you can't have a river that, you know goes from one ocean to the other ocean like that's not a river anymore um or you know rivers that cross all these mountain ranges um you know thinking about just where you put things the fact that you know mountains uh are created you know by natural forces and so i often when i'm drawing a map try to think about sort of the tectonic plates and the fact that mountains go in ranges you know or uh, are caused by, you know, volcanic activity, something like that. It's not just, uh, you know, I'd say one of my it's pretty pet huge. peeves. Yeah, one of my pet peeves is when people just take a handful of mountains and a handful of forests and lakes and they just scatter them across the map, mm. sort of randomized. Um, like, you know, again, anything is, anything is possible and certainly you can... Uh, if you have a reason for why it's that way, you can explain it and say, well, this world doesn't have any tectonic activity or whatever. Um, but putting a little thought into why things are the way they are is always worthwhile. Um, so that's true for geography. Um, for world building in general, honestly, I think my my biggest pet peeve is just people not bothering to think about why it's interesting um, like what it is that the player, the reader is going to get out of it. Like, don't just make another Middle Earth clone, you know, find yeah. something about that world that's novel or that intrigues you um, and double down on it. Um, you know, you don't need to have the standard elves and dwarves. You don't need you. everything to. Yeah. I think that's yeah. our pet peeve collectively. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I have such a problem yeah. with elves and dwarves that in general. Some of our pet the worst not, because it's. Not all I feel us. like it's such a cultural <laughs> shorthand. Except for Chris, he likes so much more interesting things. <laughs> Sorry, we're talking about <laughs> right. yeah. No, I mean it's it's totally true, and you know that's one of those things where um, I can remember being you know, 20, 21 and reading Pretty Doe Street Station for the first time. Yeah. And I feel like a combination of, you know, reading some of that new weird stuff um, and also, frankly, seeing some adventures like, uh, you know, you mentioned Richard Pett earlier, yeah. um, but as an author who's just totally gonzo in his <laughs> world building um, for role-playing games, you know, some of the most iconic adventures that, uh, you know, both 
Dungeon Magazine and Pathfinder ever published, uh, came out of Rich. Um, and I think a lot of it was because it went so far afield from the standard elf forests and dwarves under the mountains kind of mm-hmm. kind of feel. Um, so yeah, I really encourage people to uh, to get weird with their stuff, and even it doesn't have to be everything. Like it's not that you have to totally reinvent the wheel, but just come up with you know a different take on something and lean into it, right? Like you know flip. Take something that you've always seen be a certain way and rotate it 90 degrees or flip it entirely. Um, You know, if the elves were the good guys before, they're the bad guys now. You know, whatever Mm -hmm. it is, it doesn't have to be rocket science. Um, But as you change things, it'll force you to get away from like all your other stock, uh, stock sort of stereotypes that you have in your head. because that's that's the real danger is that you'll just end up recycling everything you've already seen, and by tweaking a couple of things, you can make it harder for yourself to just take the easy route. So in Starfinder, uh, I I believe you played a big role in coming up with uh, everything that was done for the sun, and you said it was kind of a reference to yeah. Sun Diver. Oh, yeah. I mean, so I actually, um, for people who don't know around uh, Starfinder, like, I was really lucky with early, eh, early-ish on in the creation of Pathfinder's setting, um, I had always been, even though a lot of people there like science fiction, I'd been the guy who was trying to get sort of science fiction elements into uh, Pathfinder from the beginning, like in the very first Gazetteer of Varicia that I wrote in Pathfinder number three, um, I had a space elevator in there. I was, and, and uh, Jacobs and Wes actually had to sit me down and go, okay, this is cool, but this is a fantasy <laughs> game, so you need to slow your roll, right? And then they uh, had in the elves, and they're just literally space aliens later on, I'm pretty sure. Right, right. Well, I mean, yeah. that's the thing. is like we, uh, we rolled some of that stuff out as we went. Um, and actually, elves as aliens is a perfect example of how you can take something familiar and tweak it just a little bit yeah. and then – have a lot of fun with it. I think the dying um, earth direction. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and so a few years later, um, I really wanted to do a book about Galarian's solar system. So if Pathfinder is all set pretty much on this one planet, um, we know it has a solar system. What are on those other planets? And so, uh, you know, the other Pathfinder staffers very graciously let me just kind of go off and write a book um, and so I wrote this book, creating uh, the other worlds in the setting. Um, and there were a few things we knew, like we knew there was going to be a red and green planet, very inspired by the pulps, because Eric Mona is a huge pulp fan. <laughs> um, and we knew that there was like a Lovecraftian world called Octurn. But most of the planets we didn't, uh, other than that, we didn't really know anything else about the solar system. And so for me, it was a really fun chance to take a bunch of sort of real world astronomical phenomena and see how they would map onto a fantasy setting. And so it's like, okay, well, I've got a world that's tidally locked. So one side is always, you know, facing the sun and one side's always facing away. You know, what does a civilization on that planet look like? You know, if I've got a planet that has a really um, eccentric orbit, so sometimes it's closer or farther from the sun, what does that look like? Um, you know, and to sort of use those ideas to inspire a bunch of different worlds. 
Um, and fortunately, it uh, it came out and people were very happy with it. And then when it came time to do Starfinder, they let me uh, sort of make that the basis for the Starfinder setting. Um, and, but so, yeah, the sun very much in the original Distant Worlds, the sun was, uh, you know, I had two extra pages to fill, but I didn't really have a, a big concept of what would be going on with the sun. But there was a very... Um, you know, I haven't read it in years, but uh, to me, a very important uh, novel called Sundiver by David Brin, which is the first book of the Uplift trilogy, um, which presents this idea of, you know, what if what if intelligence actually first arose inside the sun? Like, what if that's where the progenitors of, you know, life on Earth came from? Um, and so playing with that idea of cultures existing within the sun where nobody can see them. Uh, was just a fun trope that I could throw in there. And then a few years later, they did an entire, uh, the Dawn of Flame adventure path is entirely about exploring the sun and, uh, and mashing up those ideas of you know, the science fiction elements of the sun with stuff like the plane of fire in the city of brass, because obviously why wouldn't fire elementals feel totally at home on the sun? Right. Of so course. yeah, trying to mix it, mix up those, uh, those different flavors. Yeah. All right, uh, James, do you, uh, I, I think we're going to pivot towards the world building session, if that's okay with you. Sounds great. Let's do awesome. it. Awesome. Okay. So the way that this is going to work is that we have a couple of categories that we're going to roll some random dice for, and we're going to build as we go. And then <laughs> okay. at a certain point, we're going to get to the part where we throw in a twist, and then we have to take the previously established thing that we have and then throw in the twist. And make it there. work, like they say. Gotcha. All right. So first things, well, before we get going, do you have a particular flavor that you want to focus on or you just want to let the dice decide? Uh, let's let the dice decide. Okay. Right? It's all, all fantasy, right? right? No, no, no. We've got the first die I'm going to roll is uh, the type of, you know, flavor that we're going for, whether it be sci-fi, fantasy, horror, or modern day. So let's oh, see. Oh, all right. Got. Yeah, let's yeah. go for it. <laughs> all right. So first things first, we've got a one, Ooh. which brings it yes, into sci-fi. Sci-fi. Okay. Uh, Next up, we're going to go with the subject, and that's going to be either item, monster, place, f- historical figure, event, or roll twice and combine. So let's see what we get here. Not roll twice, uh, we've got event. Okay. Okay. And now uh, we've got the theme, which is madness, sacrifice, love, metamorphosis, pride and honor, the unspeakable, triumph and hope. So we're going to see oh, what wow. we get there. And we have, what's that, a three? Oh, love. That's love. love. So sci-fi that features an event and involves a theme of love. Yes. All right. Shame so, of water. Yeah. All right. So, <laughs> so James, friends. we're going to let you start off uh, with, even if it's just a basic idea, we'll let you start off. So it's a sci-fi event that has a theme surrounding love. So go ahead. Oh, God. Okay. Um, well, what if it's an alien race that is super long lived, but they only mate every like thousand years. Um, and they all do it at the same time. And so the, uh, the galactic civilization is kind of thrown into a weird tumult by the fact that like for a year, this really powerful alien race that normally is, you know, in charge of a bunch of things, it's just one giant, like, you know, okay. Cupid fueled, uh, dating on far on far. That's what I was trying to think of. Yeah. 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 (laughs) See, where, why nice. does my brain okay. go to the Zoidberg race when they all go? That was totally a race. Yeah, exactly. Hot <laughs> bar, Zoidberg, be. you know. <laughs> why not pick Zoidberg? Yeah, like, <laughs> you should, 
<laughs> okay. Uh, all right. So more specifically, so we've got this ancient lit. So, mm-hmm. so this is um, an event. How can we now twist the event to make it more in- or to oh, not go ahead? What if they're so, okay. They've got to get together all the people of this ancient civilization for yes. their love fest, but the rest of the, of the galaxy is kind of like not paying, not being paid mind to because you said that this civilization is a big deal right yeah what if they're incredibly warlike and this weird time of weakness of love is like the time where people are like what the hell is going on yeah what yeah. Like, every retreated? thousand years there's a truce and also <laughs> i kind of imagine like this these people kind of being disgusted that they have to take the year off to love <laughs> yeah. especially if they're going to be warlike until they like, start feeling it yeah, yeah well like, or what if there's even like uh what if it's just synced up really terribly? Like what if in addition to being, you know, this race, one of the reasons they're so important is because they're the ones who every so often have to push the button to keep the black hole that powers everything from devouring their world. But this year pushing the button like coincides with the love, you know, the love face fest. So they either need to like stop this black hole from destroying the galaxy or, you know, doing so would cause them to skip this uh, this mating thing and sort of doom their race. They're kind of caught between two disasters, and and they don't want it to be publicly known because if it became known that this is when they're doing their uh, mating ritual or whatever, people could take advantage of that and sure, doom their race. of course. Now let's talk about a little bit more about a doomed race because when I say event, do we want this to have already happened? Like, is yeah. this is this black hole singularity type event? Is has this already happened? So now we're in the in the present. Now there's like very few of them, and there's like they're dying off, maybe or something. I like, like that. I like the idea of like they got to go to this thing and deal with it, but we're stuck with the consequences of not not being here because it seems like that's mm, where the tension yeah. is. You know, they are purposely yeah. using the black hole and the time dilation to cause their species to get rebooted and just launch a bunch of children at the same time. Okay. Oh, time dilation is a really interesting aspect of all of this, right? Like maybe they're, maybe they've used that time dilation to somehow like effectively make themselves immortal. Um, because as they approach the, the black hole, you know, time is stretching out, but they've somehow figured out a way to communicate out of it. And so that's how they manage to achieve this form of like, near immortality while still affecting the rest of the universe. You're essentially creating a paragon race just through like <laughs> time manipulation in a lot of ways. Yeah. So, okay. Well, and you know, one thing I would, uh, just one general idea I would throw out there. Um, something that I've learned over the years is uh, while it depends on your setting, oftentimes putting a, the big interesting events in the past ends mm-hmm. up kind of biting you because people say, mm-hmm. oh, that's super cool. Like, I want to play through that. Like, yeah. I want to experience uh, that. Yeah. So That was the feeling I had, too. Like, it was such an interesting concept. Like, let's, let's be in that moment, yeah. you know? Yeah, right? And, like, you know, fallen, you know, growing up in the uh, remain, ruins of a fallen empire is a really useful, interesting trope. But uh, something I always encourage people to do is say, like, okay, when you've come up with an idea, like explore both sort of the past of that idea and the future of that idea and see if maybe the most interesting time might be uh, at a different place than where you originally get it, right? Like, so for instance, if you've got that flying city, is is the most interesting time for that city, like while it's being constructed, while when it's first launching, like as it's being, you know, 
attacked at the height of its power or like 20 years after it's been destroyed and now people are exploring the, you know, the ruins of it, right? Like just sort of going forward and backward on the timeline can be really useful. What a great piece of advice. Like that's, that's really cool because now you can kind of, I mean, one, it's, it's tripling your work in a lot of ways, but it also makes sure that you get the best idea out of that core concept possible. But it gives you the history of anything that you haven't used. So you can build off of that. When it forces you not to dwell on backstory, because I feel like that's what happens in world building. We create too much backstory, but we're not dwelling in the moment of it, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, All right. So I feel like we've got a a pretty good core concept down for this. Now let's fuck it up with some twists. (laughs) Please don't put family gets involved. Oh, that would be great. Uh, Actually. Yeah. So I've got, I've got, we've got a bunch of twists. I'm not going to say them all out loud. I'm just going to roll the guy. Just roll and tell us what we get. All right. All right. So I've, Oh, look at that. A one. Uh, So everything, you know, is wrong. (laughs) Oh, so they're not actually going there to mate then maybe. Yeah. So, yeah. So maybe it's so maybe what Chris said earlier about mm. them rebooting, maybe it's a matter of they they are have some kind of weird cyclical event that oh. happens to them, and this is not like really a love ritual at all. It's their it, birth. Oh, they're they're like witnessing their own birth all over maybe. again. You mean yeah. like the death of their civilization and birth of it are simultaneously happening? Yes. constantly. Yeah. the death and the birth. Yeah, so they're like in sort of a recursive loop. Interesting. And the black hole plays some role in that, I assume. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you sure, yeah. Yeah, okay. Sci-fi black hole is kind of like a wizard did it. It's the ultimate thing. Yeah, Yeah. yeah, exactly. (laughs) Or or somehow the aboliths are involved. They're always involved. (laughs) Oh, my God. I used to have... so you talk about Abolus. I used to have on the wall of the editorial pit at Paizo, there was a whiteboard, um, and I just drew a flow chart um, that just said, you know, did the Abolus do it? <laughs> and like, if you if you got to yes, it said, no, they didn't, you know, like, <laughs> because it's just, it's too, it, too there easy. Was something, yeah, there was some project where like a monster book where three of the 10 monsters in it we're all, well, the Abolith made these. And I was like, nope. <laughs> You're like, we used it all up. Nobody gets to play with the Abolith for a little while. <laughs> it's kind of like, it's kind of like half dragons. Like eventually yeah. in th- in third and 3.5 edition, it, there were so many half dragons and dragonlings. And like, there was the book of draconic and stuff like that, that, it, that I remember, I, I can't remember who it was, but someone at Paizo was like, all right, we can't do dragons. We can't do half dragons anymore. <laughs> We're just, it's the, the gap stops here. And like every done. race can't be ancient. You all <laughs> right. can't be ancient. One of you was first. <laughs> well, and there's, it's interesting. Like, you know, it's, it's a problem that shows up a lot because anytime you build something cool, the temptation is to go back to that well over and over again. Mm, and especially, yeah. especially I find that's a problem with newer authors. Um, and, and, you know, this can go either way because oftentimes when you're training up a new author or a new writer, um, you know, they'll be tempted to either play with all the toys they already love about the setting, which leads to everybody trying to make everything about those couple of, you know, big questions. Or you'll have somebody who's trying to leave their mark on the world by doing, uh, you know, whatever was popular before, but more, you know, so it's like, okay, well, yeah, exactly. You know, it's like, okay, well, you liked Aridin. Now we've got Super Aridin, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> I live through um, 90s image comics. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, the t- and so uh, I feel like both of those are two, two symptoms of that same pull to play with the, uh, 
play with what's already been established and cool. Um, and I think you got to be really careful with that because often it's better to invent something, something sort of related, but different. Yeah. All right. So uh, I think that's going to do it for the world building part. Um, James, thanks so much for that. That was really fun. Uh, that was really- that was incredibly effective, you guys. Like, <laughs> yeah. I feel like I feel like you've got a novel right there with uh, <laughs> so easily with that premise. Like that yeah. could easily be a like classic science hard SF sort of book. Oh, I would, oh I, yeah. I'd read it. Yeah, yeah it's called <laughs> Zoidberg: The Awakening. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. You know, it it becomes a comedy if you just believe yeah. it's Zoidberg involved. <laughs> you can totally turn it into right. like a treasure hunting yeah. thing while they're all doing their sex thing. There's a whole bunch of people like rampaging their planet who knows oh yeah all right so james i i got some some quick questions for you yeah Um, so i have uh i have some people my my wife wants to know is cereal a soup Um, cereal a soup yes uh wow i had never thought about it before but yeah it's gotta be okay uh what are you what, what rpgs have you been playing recently oh god um not as many as I should. The last one I played was uh, I actually ran a Starfinder game. I ran my convention game for a friend who was right about to have a kid as sort of a the gamer baby shower equivalent where it's That's like, amazing. okay, you're, you're not going to have a lot of time. So for tonight, we're all like getting dressed up in costumes oh and we're God. running, you know, just like a three hour one shot game. And it was really fun. That's, that's, I want that in my life. I want a friend like <laughs> you in my life. So when my life ends by having a child, I can at least get back <laughs> from the baby shower. Game. Right. Uh, all right. And uh, so you were, for, for those of you who might not know, uh, James is also in a band called Brides of the Lizard God. <laughs> yes. and, uh, I, I So in researching for the interview, I listened to the first uh, album and the first five seconds of the song just had a big, stupid smile plastered on my face. <laughs> nice. Uh, so obviously you're kind of a fan of like metal and like hardcore and punk. Oh, music. yeah, yeah. Yeah. So uh, can you can you list anything that you may have been able to put into world building as a result? <laughs> and if not, <laughs> just go ahead and tell me what you've been listening oh to. Oh God, they came they came out of metal. Um, let's see. I would say I would say a lot of Starfinder stuff has been fueled by Coheed and Cambria. Oh yes, uh, yeah, like, they got yeah. sci-fi bent, don't they? Yeah, they're my, they're my favorite sort of prog uh, prog band. Um, I really love their stuff. Uh, I'm trying to think. I've drawn a lot of maps uh, while listening to a sort of smaller time hardcore band called It Prevails. Um, Their subject matter isn't very science fiction, but uh, I normally can't listen to a ton of music while I'm writing, um, which is why I really love... You know, when I'm writing an adventure, there will come the point where I say, okay, well, now I got to spend like two days drawing maps for this thing. And that's when I get to just throw on like, all right, I'm going to listen to all my old, you know, like hardcore and metal and all these different things um, and just kind of blast it while I'm drawing tiny little boxes for, you know, some city (laughs) map. Um, Let's see. What else have I been listening to a lot recently? Um, I think... Actually, this isn't metal at all. Like, I I have very eclectic tastes because I'll be like, you know, I'll listen to some really hardcore metal stuff. And then, like, recently I've been listening to a lot of Bleachers. I don't know if you've ever heard that band. Um, But uh, it's sort of like poppy. Um, It's one of the dudes from that band Fun. So he's super popular. But uh, it's just this really fun, like, 80s-inspired, big kind of dancey rock stuff. Um, And so I've been loving that. But... uh, 
but just yesterday I was slacking uh, when I should have been writing and recording a bunch of like instrumental stuff in the vein of like Russian circles, kind of instrumental metal. Um, and um, actually, you know what? I will plug, because uh, what inspired me to do that, I will plug another podcast that I really enjoy called Tomorrow We Die, um, which is all hardcore musicians from the Seattle area telling tor- stories about being on tour. And it just whoa. cracks me up every time when somebody's like, well, and then we were in Minnesota and it got so cold that the door handles broke off the van and all our stuff was inside <laughs> and we couldn't play. You know, like, um, it, it's times like that because I did get so into uh, music in my twenties. Uh, you know, I was really trying to make a go of it in a, like a hardcore band called shadow at morning. Um, it's, it's stories like that that make me really thankful that I decided to pursue writing instead of music as my actual career, <laughs> because it's so cool. Music is so cool and so miserable as a, yeah. as a profession. I feel like there's a reason that a lot of rock stars are super messed up. You know, it's because that's what the industry does to you. At that Living point. on the road, man. Yeah. yeah. Like I feel so fortunate. And I talk about this with all my band friends, like, I'm so feel so fortunate that I've been able to work in RPGs and uh, novels, which a pay enough that I can actually afford to, you know, live in a house and eat food. That's not Taco Bell every day. That's a big um, deal. And also the fact that writing is something you can do on your downtime, like outside of having, you know, a regular job. Like you can't have a regular day job and be on tour for six months, but you can mm-hmm. totally come home from your job every night, you know, and steal an hour to work on your novel or your game settings. So I feel like writing is one of the most freeing of the artistic pursuits for that reason. Absolutely. Uh, and that is going to do it for like the quick round, unless you guys have any other questions, uh, anything quick. No, I oh, I did have one question. It's kind of a more nerdy technical question. Yeah, so, okay. Because you're a guy who has like had to handle so much information, whether it's managing like lots of people creating a campaign and doing the work for your own novels. Yeah. What software are you using to manage your notes, whether it's, you know, paper or software or what are you doing to do to deal with that? So, uh, so I will tell you the truth about uh, Pathfinder and Starfinder is uh, one of the things that was the best is they for Pathfinder, a bunch of fans created this thing called the Pathfinder Wiki, where they were trying to just archive all of the world information we'd ever presented. And pretty much from day one, everybody in the office went, oh, thank God. You know, because now, like, now we don't have to hold it in our heads. And like, yes. you know, we could search through all the PDFs and stuff, but it suddenly got so easy to just go to this Wikipedia of our game, you uh-huh. know, that so... We used that constantly, um, and I think uh, we actually hired one of uh, Mark Moreland, who was one of the main developers over at Pathfinder, uh, came straight out of that community of people really? who built that thing. Yeah. Um, so you know, uh, step one: if you've got fans that'll do it for you, that's really awesome. I know I know a number of authors who uh, have been lucky enough to have that, but. The rest of the time, honestly, uh, I'm pretty bad at keeping notes. Like I tend mm-hmm. to keep them just in a giant wad at the end of the Word document, um, which is not the most convenient. But uh, <laughs> recently, uh, an author named Tobias Bakel introduced me to this software called VoodooPad, which is basically oh, heard of that. Uh, it, it's like a build your own little wiki thing, mm-hmm. um, but it's just it's not online. It's just internal. 
um, on your computer. And I've found that to be really interesting to try and build out, you know, a world document where I can then link to, okay, if I name the three gods here, I can click on their name and it'll bring me to a new page where I can write stuff up about them. And, you I know, that's yeah. neat. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, and I think, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's free. That said, yeah. uh, he told me about it. I played with it for like two days and then promptly got sucked into other projects. So I haven't <laughs> used it on a full project, but gotcha. that kind of wiki software seems great. Yeah. And, cool. and speaking of plugs, uh, I think we're just about at the end of our time here, James. So is there anything that you want to plug while we got the last two minutes? Yeah, like your new novels? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't have any new novels to announce quite yet, unfortunately. Okay. Working on that. But um, in the meantime, I am the writer on a new uh, Starfinder game for Amazon Alexa, um, oh, which yeah. is part of a new uh, new frontier for that uh that brand and kind of for rpgs in general but it's a yeah it's a voice game that you play um through alexa like she sort of acts as your gm and it's like a solo campaign uh and the first episode of it is free and available now if anybody wants to play it like if you have an alexa device you can literally just say star you know alexa play starfinder uh and it'll launch you right into you know going around apple's home station hunting goblins and stuff. Uh, oh, so yeah, that's that's the big really project cool. I'm working on right now. Uh, but if anybody's interested, um, you know, I'm always on Twitter at James L. Sutter. My website is jameslsutter.com. I also teach a lot of classes um, uh, on world building and other elements of writing. So that's how that works up on your site. The one in, is in Seattle, right? Is it? There's a new one. Yeah, sometimes yeah. I do it online. I'm uh, really... Fortunate, I got invited by Clarion West, who's sort of the premier right. uh, science fiction author uh, training program. Like they do big programs in the summer that's like six weeks, mm-hmm. uh, but they also do one day workshops. So they're having me do a day long uh, session where I basically just download every trick I've learned about world building. Uh, over the course of six hours, just kind of like we'll all drink from the world building fire hose together. Um, but it's really fun. I've taught that class a couple of times. All right. All right. Uh, James, thank you so very much for joining us. Uh, it's been a real delight and I don't often say that. Um, yeah. yeah. I feel bad for your other guests now. (laughs) I'm constantly abused. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but again, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. And, uh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. This was so much fun. And I want to hear the novel you guys write about, uh, about that black. Get right on that. Yeah, absolutely. And I hope you enjoyed that interview with James L. Sutter. Uh, it was a real honor to be able to, interview someone with that much experience and someone who's genuinely just a super nice and cool person. And be able to create with it was kind of fun. Yeah, that was, that was a, a genuine highlight for it's, me in general. I hope he never realizes that in a way he gave us a fr- free world building class. Yes. Oh, we definitely got some free... Uh, although, to be fair, workshop. this is probably advertising for his world building yeah. class so as well. So workshop, guys. Yeah. Worth checking out. I, honestly, I would, I would strongly I would recommend it. Like, yeah. just, just from the brief conversation that we had with him... Yeah. This he is like full to bursting of really, really uh, interesting ideas and knowledge of the industry and like everything. In, in Grub Street, they have workshops like this, but what I really would like is having it like something like that here. Like they don't have genre workshops. Yeah, I think I think that's uh, kind of important, especially if you're looking for specific genre work more than anything else. 
So yeah, that will just about do it. So yeah, I hope you enjoyed our interview with James L. Sutter. And uh, you can look forward to more interviews, not necessarily with James, but in the future. We have a couple that are hopefully kind of coalescing as we speak. And we're going to be doing more of these episodes in the future. If you have, if you think that's a bad idea, or if you want to tell us who we you think we should interview, you can go ahead and, just, and shoot us an email at worldbuildwithus at gmail.com. Or we've recently been really stepping up our footprint on Twitter. You can follow us on Twitter at Let's World Build, and you can basically direct message us and we'll, we'll or tweet directly at us and we'll get back to you pretty quickly. And until next time, just remember that we love you very much and I hope you have a good week.